Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Tech Demand Weekly. We've talked before about websites and SEO back in episode 13 with Miles Winstone and the subject has always been my Achilles heel. As it happens, I've recently launched my own website and after realising just how bad I am at using modern website building sites like Squarespace and Wix, I asked a professional to help. You see, making your website look good is just one small cog in a much bigger wheel. There was a woman last fall who sued Beyonce because she was unable to buy a sweatshirt on her site because the site was not accessible. SEO is such a snake oil game for such a long time that there's this misunderstanding of what it really is. Jeff White is the co-founder of Cooler Partners, an agency designed to help leading manufacturers digitally transform their marketing and sales. Jeff began building websites over 25 years ago and now leads the design and development practice at Cooler Partners. To begin our chat, I asked Jeff how much things have changed since he started out. I think it's fair to say that there has been a large change, but it's one of those things that the the more things change, the more they stay the same, really. I mean, we're, you know, originally, you know, all we had was HTML. We, we barely even had images. I remember some early sites that, you know, were using animated GIFs and, and things called push uh, in order to kind of push files to make it look like they were animating. And I mean, that was revolutionary in 1995, <laughs> 96. You know, and then we, we got into this this weird period where, you had two browser manufacturers, Netscape and Microsoft, and they were basically trying to one-up each other, continuing to introduce features that only worked in their browser, but nowhere else. And it brought us to this period where if you wanted to optimize your site and make it available for everybody, the amount of custom coding you would have to do to make that site look good in both browser environments and and any other kind of peripheral browsers like Opera or, or whatever, it took a whole bunch of extra effort and it uh, it was slowing down production and it was making things really difficult for users. So, you know, you'd have sites that, you know, this site is made for Internet Explorer 3 and it looks like crap in Netscape. So, you know, eventually there was this movement, the web standards movement kind of founded by Jeffrey Zeldman and, and several other prominent designers that brought this idea to the fore that, you know, if we get the browser makers to start using a consistent standards-based model, we can design sites that will be coded once and work everywhere. Now, it was always a little bit of fiction, but, you know, for the most part, it, it kind of came true. And, you know, that made sites faster. It made them load more quickly, obviously. And it got us away from kind of this markup where we were actually putting the the styling code in the HTML and we were able to pull that out and put it in cascading style sheets or CSS. And that made everything better. Now we're in a bit of a weird place. I, I think it's pretty rare these days to find a site that is legitimately <laughs> horrible. <laughs> you know, whereas it used to be like, man, you know, like three quarters of the sites you would go to just like, okay, this is awful, but I need to get something. So I'll I'll stick it out. Now, you know, they all they all look pretty good. They all look pretty much the same, you know, logo top left, navigation across the top, you know, large image in the middle, call to action in the center, you know, that kind of thing. But the tools and technology for building sites have become pretty advanced and they're pretty readily available and, and I think that's both good and bad because we've 
come to a place where a lot of designers and developers are relying on these packaged libraries of tools that allow them to do certain things, certain effects and animations and and all of the tracking cookies and everything else that's going on is that we've kind of gotten back to a place where the sites have a ton of bloat. And, you know, we have good looking, mostly usable sites, but we're being tracked everywhere we go. And uh, we're downloading, you know, meg upon meg of, of uh, extra JavaScript that isn't necessary just because the developer might have been a bit lazy. And we're kind of back to a place where we have a single dominant browser. Google Chrome is, is by far the most popular browser in the world, and that has its own issues. But uh, I'd say that we're, we're in a better place, and certainly we can create more interesting things and do more with the web now. You talk about how websites now look identical. Yes, you might be able to get a slightly different layout to the next person, but they're either made by, I don't know, Squarespace or Wix and and other sites like that, which are basically competing for your money, but you'll end up with the same result anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of templating for sure. And I mean, certainly the, you know, the most popular would be WordPress, you know, it powers a a staggering uh, amount of of the internet and uh, is largely free. But as a result, part of the problem is that you have these themes that are free and that are built to accommodate any need. And because of that, they all look the same. And they also carry this huge weight of extra plugins and JavaScript and other functionality that, uh, you know, are just they're using bandwidth for no reason other than the fact that the people didn't know to remove them or didn't know how to customize them so that they were made just for that site. Are there any differences between websites that are built for uh, B2B brands and, and those that are built for B2Cs? I think the the biggest difference is that um, in a lot of cases, when you when you're talking about a B two C site, and we have some B two C legacy clients. I mean, we've been in the manufacturing space for a couple of years now, but we've been around long enough that we've had clients in in many different verticals. Um, we still maintain a couple of those relationships. Like we have one e commerce platform for selling wine and craft beer for a, a premium wine store here in in Halifax. We love the idea of selling wine, and we we like to see the experiments that can be done with the e commerce in order to kind of drive sales and, and see what's going on there. But and I think the biggest difference is that you need to understand what the journey of the buyers are for that particular client. And in B2B, you know, you're talking about a very complex sales process. In many cases, you know, Gardner is is saying that, you know, the vast majority of B2B sales are now up. You're talking about selling to 8 to 10, 12 people who are involved in any purchase. And each one of those people who are involved in that purchase you know, can veto that they have different needs, they have different requirements for that sale. So addressing all of their different needs is kind of paramount as we're creating the architecture for the site and we're creating the content and and making a design that is going to appeal to their buyers. And in that case, you know, you're, you're creating content for each one of those personas and understanding what their specific role is. And this is a real drain on, on many marketers because content is expensive. It takes a ton of time. But uh, one of the things that, you know, B2B sites do seem to have the benefit of is that they do trail B2C in, in a, 
in a number of different ways. And we can learn from some of the best practices in B2C, you know, such as how to do e-commerce well. Um, it also means that people who make up these B2B buying groups, they have really high expectations because they think every e-commerce site should work like Amazon. And they think that every interaction they have should work as well as Facebook does. And they don't seem to understand that, uh, you know, a lot of B2B brands simply don't have the marketing budgets to, to create something that is as engaging as a, as a site like Facebook, but everybody uses that and it's a tall order. B2B sites also have really complex software requirements. We build sites that regularly integrate e-commerce with product information management systems, uh, ERP platforms, you know, to control the inventory, uh, sending data to CRMs and marketing automation platforms. And all of these different things have to talk together. They have to synchronize the data so that your marketing and sales and IT people know exactly what's going on with them. And that adds to the cost. So is, is there one thing that you see time and time again that aren't happening on websites that, that really should be? Yeah, I, 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 it's it's one of the things that we really that we really harp on uh, at Kula, and, and that's website accessibility. There is a huge number, and I don't know what the what the percentage is in the UK or Europe, but in North America, it's like a one in five, one in six chance that someone is going to have some form of disability, mm. you know, whether that's a partial or complete blindness. They could be deaf or otherwise have mobility issues or or things like that, and. There's a whole set of rules and standards around accessibility called the YCAG accessibility guidelines. And basically, it's interesting. We, we did a talk at a uh, conference in Miami. And uh, ahead of that conference, the uh, organizer sent us the URLs of every attendee's website. It was just a small conference. There were about 100 okay. people. 99 of them did not meet accessibility guidelines. Right. 99. And these are very basic tests. So things like contrast, you know, can you read the type on, on the background yeah. that it's on? Is there enough contrast that someone with low vision would be able to read that? There were a uh, lack of alternative descriptions for rich media like photos and video and things like that. No keyboard navigation, no other things that actually make the web usable for everyone. And this is a huge problem, especially in the U.S. In the final quarter of 2018 last year, there were nearly a thousand lawsuits brought against companies for not having sites that met guidelines. There are laws in, in probably every country about, you know, if you have a restaurant, you need to have a wheelchair ramp. Uh, not having a website that is accessible to a blind user is exactly the same as not having a business, a retail business that can be accessed by someone in a wheelchair. And so there's a massive number of these lawsuits that are being brought. And one of the, the most high profile ones was there was a woman last fall who sued Beyonce because she was unable to buy a sweatshirt on her site wow. because the site was not accessible. Yeah. You know, in the web community, it made huge news. You had people saying, you know, look, Beyonce, I'll, ma I'll make your site accessible for you. You know, like, let me do it. But it just kind of brings to the fore this idea that the web is for everyone. It's a democratized platform, at least it used to be. It should be accessible to everyone. And it's really not hard to design and build sites that are. It's just that most people either don't know or they don't take the time and think it's going to be a lot of extra effort. And we really, I mean, we were big proponents of the web standards movement that kind of brought us browsers that displayed content the same way to everyone. This is just the next evolution of that. 
when it comes to B2B websites then, Jeff, what sort of way can you design them to benefit that buyer's journey that, that you're hoping your visitors are going to go on? I think the most important thing is, you know, first you need to understand who your buyers are. When we go into an engagement with a, a new client or, or even an existing one who's kind of breaking into a new market or something like that, you know, we, we really need to understand exactly who it is that they're selling to, um, what their objections and concerns are. And this really means that we need to get alignment between the sales team and the marketing team so that it's not just about the sales team is saying that the leads are weak and the marketing team is saying, well, you guys don't work them. <laughs> you know, it's the things that we hear when we, when we first go into an engagement with someone. But when we begin the process of building a new website for someone, one of the things we really try and do is ensure that we get some sales alignment and get those sales team members into the room and find out what their concerns are, find out what their customers are saying, you know, you know what the objections that they're regularly hearing. And then try and develop a buyer's journey around each one of those things, understanding that there's only so much time, there's only so much money to do this. So if you've got eight different personas that you need to target, you're probably going to have a hard time creating an entire funnel's worth of content for all eight of those people right off the top. And it's something you're going to have to build over time. So you know, we want to ensure that we're creating opportunities for those personas to convert and identify themselves as a potential buyer or as a lead or a prospect, and then kind of figure out how we're going to shuttle them down through that journey. And, you know, when is that lead going to be presented to sales? What data can you give to sales so that they understand who that person is within the context of that pot potential customer? We have one client, they manufacture supplements and other types of things for the agriculture industry for for feeding animals in transit but they also service the research space as well so university labs that have animals in the lab so these two buyers the agriculture side and the research side are, are very different and they have really different requirements so and we know that they both buy differently and the people who are buying for a farm um, are buying pallets upon pallets of this stuff, whereas the people in a lab maybe just need a few cases. So what we did was we created an e-commerce platform for the lab-based customers and then created content for the agriculture type folks so that they could convert and be turned over to a sales team to be worked. Um, it really simplified the, uh, the sales process for their e-commerce uh, clients and made it easier for their admin team to kind of manage that. They were having a lot of trouble shuttling data around and figuring out where they were shipping within an individual university. And then the agricultural customers can, you know, kind of learn more and be nurtured through to a sale rather than uh, buying directly online. So, you know, figuring out who you're selling to and, and how they want to be engaged is a certainly a big part of understanding that buyer's journey. Do you think it's hard for brands to sort of see their websites through the eyes of a buyer when they initially start building a website? I think a lot of, not necessarily marketers, but I think a lot of people involved um, in the purchase of a website do have a hard time not seeing it as for them. So, you know, you'll get the CEO is like, I don't like it. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's it's not about you, sir. You know, it's it's about the people who are buying the things that you make. And uh, yeah. you know, I think 
the right kind of person will start to understand that, get that it's not for them. And once they do that, I think you're able to kind of push them in the direction like, you know, that you you're paying for the site, but you don't own it. Your customers own it. And, you know, if you want to continue to grow and increase your business, you really need to step back and, and let that happen. So one of the things that we always hearing about on this podcast from every marketeer that's actually appeared as a guest is is how you should be releasing content, whether it be new or repurposed, as often as possible in order to keep essentially everything alive that's going on um, with your website, Get keep the interest flowing. Do you think that there's an optimum amount of times that you should be updating the website, not just with fresh new content, but actually overhauling the look or the or the journey that the buyer goes through? Or is it something, do you think, that once it's done, as long as it works, don't try and fix it? <laughs> I think we need to be continually learning how our websites are performing. And, and usually that requires constant vigilance and checking your analytics and, and perhaps putting, you know, a, a tool like Hotjar on there every once in a while to see how people are moving through the site, see if they're getting stuck on certain things. Are, are they actually following the calls to action and doing what you want them to do? Or are they just kind of visiting the homepage and then bouncing? So the volume of content that needs to be created should be dependent on the kind of buyers and what their actual behavior is rather than sort of a preset, predetermined amount of, you know, you must have a thousand words every Tuesday <laughs> or, or something like that. Um, it, it really is, you know, I, I think most organizations would probably benefit more from optimizing their site than constantly creating new, especially if they're not following any sort of marketing plan that is designed to get them the clients and customers that they're looking for. I have friends who own agencies that have large internal marketing departments and they're spitting out, you know, a podcast a day and two blog posts a day and it's driving a ton of search traffic. But at what cost? You know, like a smaller agency can't necessarily afford to do that. You know, a smaller marketing team, you know, we work with a lot, you know, manufacturers who you know, in the billion plus uh, revenue side, and they've got one person in the marketing department. So, you know, un unless they're willing to bring in four or five agencies to kind of create that content for them, they would be better served to look at how the traffic they're getting currently is performing, how well are they converting, and, uh, you know, how, how often are those leads the right ones as they pass them to sales. So um, I, I don't think that there's a right answer it's almost always going to be the case that you probably need to create more content than you're doing now, um, but it needs to be the right content. Yeah, well, one of the things that I overheard at my co-working office the other day was a person who sits across the desk from me is a website developer, and he was talking to um, somebody else that had walked in who was fairly new to our co-working office, and they were just having a chat talking about this new guy's website the developer sort of said oh let me have a look I'll, I'll go and have a look for you and just you know just be interested to see what it's like and he went on and he, he simply came back and went well I'm really pleased your business is doing really well and the new guy went what do you mean how, how, how do you know and he went because your website's out of date there's nothing new on there and because the guy's a one-man band <laughs> it's just him on his own 
because he's got client work to get on with, he puts his own marketing, his own blog posts or, or whatever other content that he may want to put on his website, he puts that to the bottom of the pile every day and essentially never gets around to doing it and therefore right. looks after his clients but forgets to look after himself. Absolutely. I mean, for the first year and a half that I was in business as a web developer, I didn't even have a website. Thankfully, <laughs> I had enough clients to keep me busy. I trying my hardest to get one blog post written a week just for really for it makes mm-hmm. me feel better because I can, I'm can. i just talking about or writing something that I know about. So therefore, it's fairly easy for me to do, at least the original post. When I then have to go and optimize it for SEO, that's when it gets a bit more difficult. And that's always when I start yeah. shuddering because I end up with, you know, I've, st- I've, I've started off with what I think is a very nicely worded 500, 600 word post and tells you exactly what I want to tell you. But then I then you, you know, I come across something like if it's on a WordPress site, then Yoast will pop up saying your SEO's got a big red ugly face <laughs> on it saying, no, there's no SEO here or it's not good enough. You've used the same keyword one too many times and you should have done and, and all this, that and the other. I mean, it, it really does make me want to just crawl into a ball and cry. But, but, but should it? Should SEO? <laughs> and obviously... What we're talking about, website optimization as a whole, should that be something to be feared? Or should actually you just kind of just grab hold of it and and, and shake it until it falls into line? I, I think, I mean, SEO is such a snake oil game for such a long time that there's this misunderstanding of what it really is. And for a lot of people, for a long time, it was a system to be gamed, you know, using the right keywords the right number of times i mean the tool tools like hubspot have even removed their keyword analyzer because google has said like keywords on their own are not important anymore and are not a metric that should be used to you know as the sole thing that you that you depend upon to get organic traffic to your site what you really want to be doing is creating the kind of content that people are looking for when they're trying to find what you're doing. So if you can be helpful and you can create content that is, you know, reasonably frequently updated, that the site is has kind of got a, a there's a thematic thread that runs through the content that it's, you know, about that particular subject and, and that you know that people are probably looking for it. And it's going to take some trial and error and some experimentation. But creating these kinds of clusters of content are is going to help the business significantly more than trying to say, okay, you know, I know that this keyword has X number of searches per month and I have a good opportunity to to win on it because the, it's got low com- competition. And uh, so you write a, a big blog post about that thing. And, you know, the, the trouble is, is that I remember years ago we wrote a... Uh, We wrote a post, um, I think it was my business partner that wrote it, like five responsive web design examples or something like Mm. that. And man, that post shot to the top because everybody was looking for responsive web design examples because nobody really knew what it was yet. And they were all looking for those things. And, you know, that that post did really well for a little while. And then it got surpassed because other people wrote more and better content on sites that had more rank than we did. And it just kind of fell to the bottom. So it's it's the kind of thing that 
you know, you can kind of try and stay on top of that. And, and in a lot of ways, it's a vanity game because traffic is only one part of the equation. If it's not the right traffic, which in a lot of cases it wasn't, that was other agencies that were looking at that post and they're not our target yeah. buyer profile, you know, then it really doesn't matter. So what you should be doing is creating content that you know that your audience wants to read, that you know that people with hopefully some level of buying intent are uh, are coming to. And once you've got that, then you can kind of optimize and, and leverage that and and continue to make that work harder once you see how people are using it. But yeah, you, you can't game the system. Google's way smarter than all of us. It's going to become sentient at some point and destroy <laughs> yeah. us all, I'm sure. But, you know, it's learning all the time how people are doing things and they are penalizing people for not doing right by their users. So, you know, the, for all the for all the evilness of the Googles of the world, they they really do kind of stand on this principle that content should be created f- to be helpful for the people who are looking for it. They want people to find the right thing quickly. So the more that you can do that, the better off you'll be. Is there one thing that you'd like to go back and tell your younger self to do differently than what you've done? Or you know, something that you know now that would have actually helped you a whole lot more back in, you know, sort of the, the early 2000s, say? Well, uh, first of all, don't work 100 hours a week. It's not healthy. <laughs> and and I, I really think, you know, the, there was a long time there where we were really chasing the latest and coolest design and, you know, what can, what can we do with that, um, with that site to make it stand out and, you know, get you know, get featured on the Yahoo site of the day or, or whatever, you know, back in those days. And and I think really, you know, again, it all comes back to who is the audience, who is the user, and look to create the kinds of content, the kind of site that people are going to use, you know, don't, don't put in place user hostile things, hiding the navigation or or using a bunch of plugins that are going to slow the site down on mobile. But just create things that your users want to consume. And don't forget about accessibility. It, it might keep you out of court, but it's the right thing to do. And building sites that are clean and, and well thought out for all users is, is still really the, uh, you know, the, the panacea as far as I'm concerned around, around building websites. My thanks to Jeff White. You can find out more about the work Jeff does at coolerpartners.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of Tech Demand Weekly and have experienced some of the topics that Jeff and I discussed, then we'd love to hear from you. Leave a review on your podcast app or send us an email to podcast at tech-demand.com. Thanks for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.